Okay, uh, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Um, for those of you visiting and just with us for the first time, we've been going through 1 Samuel on Sunday mornings. Um, and it has been, we've just barely started it. And we're getting into the theme of leadership that runs through this whole book of First and Second Samuel. And we're going to go on a little bit about that today too. But first, let's pray, and then I'm going to read, read the chapter, and we'll, um, we'll go from there. Jesus, thank you for your word, and thank you that you speak through it. Um, thank you that you have the ability and the power to speak to each of our hearts this morning through this ancient text. Thank you that you have something to say. Thank you that you're not silent. Thank you that you are speaking today. And um, I pray that our hearts could be in a right posture to receive it. I pray that you would um, help us receive and act to appropriate our lives to what we hear from you. I pray that you would verify what you say. Lord, more than anything, I pray that your word would represent your presence in the midst of us today. We're here for you. We're here to honor you. We're here to exalt you. We're here to align our lives around you, to center on you. So God, would you please, as we do that, as we make a move to center on you, would you would you grace us with your, with your word to speak to us personally, also corporately, in all of those ways. Thank you for all of our friends here today. Thank you for our guests and our, um, just our church. It's a special place to be. Thank you for this family. Thank you for Paul and how you saved him. Lord, thank you for the, uh, using his scars and wounds for your glory in his life. What a blessing he is. And we just pray that you would um, bless this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me read um, 1 Samuel chapter 3, and then we'll get into it. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the, presence, to, or to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. And at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the, ark of the, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you. Go lay down again. So he went, and he laid down. And then the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went Lie down again. So Samuel, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you again, you shall say, 
Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I, I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Well, Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Don't you hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. It's hard to argue with that. So Samuel told him everything that, that uh, everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems best to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord and the Lord appeared again to, uh, at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Okay. Um, we've been going through First Samuel, First and Second Samuel on Sunday mornings, and it's been starting to get into the idea of leadership and the effect that leaders have on a society um, for good and for ill. And um, this continues on that theme, one, by telling us what's wrong. Secondly, um, it's going to show us the power of God's word, the power of the word of the Lord, especially when it comes to leading and when it comes to our own personal lives, but also leadership. And thirdly, um, we're going to learn what is, what is the word of the Lord. And finally, we'll see how it shapes a community of leaders. That's what we're going to go through. First, what's the problem? And well, from verse one, right away, it tells us that the problem is, the big problem is, is that there, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Um, there was no frequent vision, no word of God. And because the nation is not hearing the word of God, or is not being influenced by the word of God, because of that, the nation is beginning to slowly ebb away. Um, you can read about it. it, it hints at this in, in the book of Judges, the book leading up to this, it gives you kind of a cultural climate of what's going on. In Judges 17, six, uh, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the idea is because of this vacuum of leadership, because things, there's no leader pointing people to God or representing God or holding his truth as authoritative, because of that, people, people's ethics and morality began being untethered, untied from anything, um, anything true, anything uh, um, transcultural, something, an anchor to, to, to base them on. 
And so people are doing whatever's right for themselves, and things are beginning to fray apart. Things are beginning to fall apart. Um, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 29, it says, without vision, the people, do you guys know that verse? Perish. Without vision, without um, leadership, without a direction from God in this particular case, without those things, people perish. Societies fall apart. Um, and so far, that is borne out to be absolutely true in history. Um, societies and cultures that have untethered themselves from God, from his word, or anything transcultural, transcendent, historically have not made it very long. Morals and ethics began to go astray. People become laws unto themselves and um, all sorts of chaos comes back. There's this movement back from, from order and goodness back into chaos where man decides, I will decide that whatever is right for me. We see that even in the beginning um, in the Garden of Eden when Eve was tempted to eat the fruit. Remember what the serpent said. He said, did God really say? He plants this lie in her, in her mind. Did God really say that, that when you eat of it, you will die? And then it says, when she saw that the fruit was good and would make one wise, when she saw, she decided, um, as uh, my professor at school said, she decided, she decides what's good, right, true, and beautiful instead of God. I'll make the decision for myself. I'll be a law unto myself. And she takes the fruit, she eats it, and at that point, chaos comes through. Everything begins to unravel. That is really the heart behind all, behind every sin, every specific sin is a heart that says, I will decide what's good for me. I will decide what's right and what's wrong. I'm not gonna trust in God. I'm not gonna be loyal to him. I'm gonna make my own decision. And upon that decision, things begin to unravel. And that's exactly what we see here. Without a vision, the people perish. Now, why is it so rare in Samuel's day? And I think it's important to point out that in this particular text and in this particular context, in this case, um, God's word and his revelation are clearly tied to the state of the leaders of the people. There's a major tie here. Um, they don't regard the leaders of Israel, that's Eli's house, they don't regard God's word, therefore the word doesn't really go out. It's not represented. And a few things in the text will indicate this. First, if you go back to chapter 2, chapter 2 tells of a man of God who came and warned Eli and Eli did nothing about it. Let me just read a little bit of that to you in chapter 2. It says, um, there came a man of, of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire um, from the people of Israel. In other words, your position is an honored position. Your job is an important job as a priest. It is an, a place of honor that you would represent me to the people and that you would rightly represent the people to me, that you would take their offerings and make sure that they're right and that they're good and that they're true offerings. This is all good. And he says, then why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for, for my dwelling, and here it is, and honor your sons above me? 
by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of the people. There's a priority, your priorities are all, are all mixed up. You've sworn your allegiance to something else, to someone else. In this case, his family, his own kids. This is a, a warning, I think, specifically, of course, to parents, that we can um, honor our kids when they become ultimate. We can honor our kids much more than even the word of God and, and tend to enable them or spoil them or not do what's right for them. But this is really an omen or a, a warning to all of us. Anytime a good thing, even children or wives or jobs or all of those things, anytime good things become ultimate things, things begin to be warped. You will begin to be warped. The more unhealthy we will be on that spectrum, the more out of priorities. Um, uh, St. Augustine talked about a, an ordering of loves. He basically said everything comes back to how you've ordered the loves in your life. When God is the ultimate, everything else prioritizes under that and everything begins to heal. You begin to make that movement into the presence of God and things begin to heal. And when it comes to your own mind, your own heart, your relationships with others, everything flows out of that. But the moment we begin, and it's so sneaky, isn't it? The moment we begin to think other things are more important or to give our allegiance and our loyalty to other people and other things, even good things, in that moment, things begin to unravel. Things begin to get perverted and warped within us, within our own hearts, within our minds, within society. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, Eli, you've placed your own sons above my word, above me. And that is the problem. Um, Leadership, the Bible, Christianity, influence, has everything to do with allegiance, has everything to do with loyalty. It demands our loyalty. It has everything to do. So the more influence that you can have, or or I should say, the more allegiance, the more loyalty that you give to God's word, the more influence you will have when it comes to your family, when it comes to your work, when it comes to your society. It'll influence you in the right way, and you'll be able to be a, a good leader, a biblical leader. But the more we Um, align ourselves with other things and that's what repentance is all about I noticed in that song when we were singing my heart will sing no other name but Jesus Jesus what we were doing as a practice was realigning ourselves this is something that we need to do often as the people of God to realign ourselves and you can't do that without honesty that's why denial can be so insidious if we're not willing to look Confess, the Bible says confession is a way of just being honest, of of agreeing with God, of saying, yeah, that's true. I do struggle with that. Yes, that's true. I did blow it there. I did mess. And the reason that that, the Bible says that brings healing, the Bible says confess your sins to one another and be healed. And the reason that brings so much healing is because we're aligning ourselves, we're repenting, we're putting God first. And we're deciding to put others or other things underneath him. Eli's big problem, and it might seem like a, like, a, like a small thing, but it led to such decay in the nation and in Eli's own heart. Notice that God holds Eli culpable for his, for his kids. Look what he says. Therefore, the God of Israel declares, I'm still in chapter 2. He says, I promise that your house, the house of your father, I promise that you should go in forever before me. 
But now, declares the Lord, far be it from me, for those who honor me, that means that give loyalty to me, those that are, that are completely mine, those that are, uh, that, have com- that are growing in their loyalty to me, those that honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me, to God it's despising him when things are out of order. That's how he sees it. Those that despise me, um, they shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will, be not, there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on the, on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. In other words, there's gonna be prosperity in Israel and your house is gonna have nothing to do with it. I'm gonna bless these people, but you're not gonna get to be a part of it and that's gonna break your heart. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men and this shall come, this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. This shall be a sign for you. Both of them will die on the same day and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind and I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Notice what this priest will do. He shall, um, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Why will he be faithful? Who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. In other words, he will decide, he will, de- he will choose what I decide is good, right, true, and beautiful. He'll stand behind that, not his own self, not what the culture says, not what anyone else says. He's gonna hold faithful to my word no matter what. No matter what. That's the difference. And then you get into chapter three and then you see what's, it's a continuation of that. So the boy Samuel is ministering before the Lord in the presence of Eli and listen, this, is, this shows you where Eli is at. Look, at he says, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Look how the author intentionally engineers these words. There was no frequent vision, and then he goes right into Eli. At that time, his eyesight has begun to grow dim. Uh, frequently in the Bible, and especially here, authors will use the physical condition of the people that they're writing about to also describe the spiritual condition or the cultural condition Uh, the cultural climate of what's going on there in Israel. And here he pins it on Eli. There's no frequent vision and Eli's eyesight is going dim. He's he's starting to go out. And that he goes even further, he uses another symbol. Um, It says in verse three that the lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down. So in other words, here's what we've got. We've got uh, to Eli... The world is shrouded in darkness, and yet there's a lamp burning. The lamp of hope is burning still in Israel. This young boy named Samuel is being raised up. That's what the author is intentionally trying to point this picture at you. Um, The idea of allegiance chapter is about God establishing to Samuel that he is to be loyal to God's word no matter what, juxtaposed to Eli. This contrast has been going on and on and on since chapter two, contrasting Eli and his house and Samuel that's growing up underneath this controversy. 
And this is the story of Samuel's, probably his most foundational lesson in leadership. He is going to be, a, uh, he's going to give his allegiance to God's word, even when it's a very tough word to be aligned with, to be loyal to. Eli's spiritual influence in the nation is dimming. Eli also, another uh, thing to, to show here, Eli is lying down in his usual place and notice where Samuel is. Samuel is lying down in the temple where the ark of the Lord is. Again, we've got a, a position. Eli is far away from the Lord. He's going dim. The light of his influence is starting to go out. Samuel is laying down in the temple where the ark is. That symbolizes the presence of God. He's there and the light is burning. There's a lamp that's burning. So you can see what the author is trying to paint for us here. One influence, one establishment, um, one administration is on its way out. God is doing this. And yet underneath of that, he's growing up somebody that will be. And it it all depends on their loyalty to his word. The problem is the word of God is not going out because Eli doesn't, he doesn't regard God's word with high esteem, and at least not above other things like his own kids. Eli is, um, so the lamp of the Lord is frequently tied to hope. You can read about that in 1 Kings uh, chapter 15 as well, where God says to, to David, or God says, because of my servant David's sake, I will always have a lamp burning in Judah. It's talking about there will always be hope. So here's the message. Here's the problem. There's darkness in Eli's eye and no frequent vision to the nation. That's the first thing. There's darkness in Eli's eye and therefore no frequent vision to the nation. And number two, but the lamp of hope is still burning bright in the boy Samuel. God is raising him up. Eli is growing dim just as the boy Samuel is starting to burn brighter. There's this transference of leadership here. So the word of God is rare because the house of Eli didn't have a high regard for the word of the Lord. They had dimmed the word of the Lord because their allegiance was to other things. When it got tough, they wouldn't speak or they just didn't care. Therefore, the nation itself is dying because it's being deprived of the source of life. The power of life is in the word of the Lord. Now, um, notice this, the second thing. Notice the power of God's word. Look at verse, um, let me see if I can find it. Look at verse seven. It says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So Samuel, at this point, is just as lost as Eli's sons. He did not yet know the word of the Lord. In the Hebrew, it's the same phrase that we find in chapter 2, verse 12, describing, describing the sons of Eli. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. Here's the phrase. They did not know the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. The only difference in Hebrew is the author uh, for Samuel uh, uh, adds the word yet. For Samuel did not yet know the Lord. But look, they didn't know the Lord. And look what it adds to, to Samuel says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord and or because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. In other words, the reason Samuel did not yet know the Lord is because he had not yet been exposed to the word of the Lord. 
And the first point that we learn here really simply is that the word of God itself is the power to save. The word of God itself has the power to bring people to salvation. That is the power of salvation. That is the power of God. So Samuel is uh, just as lost, and the reason is because he has not been exposed to it yet. And the word of the Lord itself is salvation. It's, Sam, it's salvation for Samuel and for Israel. They're linked. Just as Eli is linked and his house is linked to the decline of Israel, Samuel, his own life, is going to be linked and it's, his leadership is going to flow out of his own allegiance to God's word. Now the word of God has the potential and the power to save because, and precisely because, it demands our loyalty. It demands that we make a choice. Eli's sons did not give their loyalty to the word of the Lord, but we're going to see that Samuel did. And that's the, that's the, that's the, the main difference here. What is the word of the Lord? Well, in this text, it's not great for Eli. Think of, think of the story here. You're Samuel. You're growing up under the tutelage, maybe, of Eli. You're serving God in the presence of Eli. He's become kind of a, a mentor of some sort. And the first word that Samuel hears about, about, uh, from the Lord is a word against the house of Eli. He doesn't speak to Samuel personally like we in our individualistic world would expect. When we, when we think about God speaking to us, we think about something very personal. Um, we think about a personal word, and certainly he can do that. But this is cast, he gives him, a, he gives him a, a message for all of society. He gives him a, a, a corporate message. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm going to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against, against Eli. This is God telling him, against your mentor. All that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. This is referring to chapter 2. When the man of God came and um, gave this horrible prophecy against Eli's house. Verse 13, I declared to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he didn't restrain them. That's the idea. I gave him a word and he didn't do anything about it. That's the problem. Think of that. God gave him a word, an instruction, and Eli didn't do anything about it. Think of that. Well, it's ignorance, but it's because of his allegiance is out. He didn't do anything about it because there were people and other things more important to him. He cared more about how his sons felt. He cared more, perhaps. He cared more about um, enabling his kids, not stopping, whatever it might have been, whatever his motives were, but we know that it says he regarded his sons above the word of God. It's not that he just forgot to do something about it. It's that it was too hard to do something about it. His heart was gripped by something else, by another allegiance, by another loyalty. And this, I think, brings this problem a little bit closer to home, doesn't it? When you're reading it at uh, in first glance, you might think to yourself, how could Eli have done that? God gave him a word. Of course, you're, you know, if someone important 
with authority gave, gives you something to do, how much more when God shows up and gives you something to do or gives you a word? You do it, of course. This is God we're talking about. But when you read about his heart, now it becomes a little closer to home, doesn't it? This is the power of, of idols, other voices, other things, other people that demand our allegiance, that our heart attends to want to follow that instead. And so with subtle compromise, we might just not say what we know we should say. We might just not do what we know we should do. Or we might throw out, you know, our brains are so quick at making all sorts of excuses. Well, it's really their job, or they should take care of it. It's not my problem, or whatever we might say. We make all sorts of excuses when, reali- when the reality is we're too scared with what somebody's opinion of us might be, or we're too concerned about the heat that we might take, or whatever it might be. And we make little compromises in our lives. We want to be our kids' best friends, always in their good, in their good graces. We, we, don't, we can't stand to be out of, um, out of their um, favor. So we do anything that we can to make it right. We might punish them, but get them an ice cream cone on the other side, or whatever it might be. And we do this with people that we feel are important, that give us a sense of value, I can't live without this person's value. I can't keep going unless this person looks well on me. I've got to fix this thing. And so we, we end up compromising. This happens in a million different ways. It can happen on a daily, weekly basis. And we begin to compromise. And to the degree that we compromise, to that degree, the, the word of the Lord beget, becomes more and more rare. To the degree that we don't speak, to the degree that we don't act, to the degree that we don't give our allegiance to what God is saying, to that degree, the word of God gets rarer and rarer in in our own lives and in society around us. But Samuel, look at this. What's so interesting is God gives this horrible message of punishment to Samuel and the person who teaches him to be loyal to it, ironically, is Eli, the one who has not been faithful to God's word. Look, Samuel lay there until morning. Can you imagine? Uh, Josephus tells us that Samuel, it was believed in Josephus' day that Samuel was probably around 12 years old at this point. Can you imagine being a 12-year-old, if that's true, but for the sake of having fun with our imagination. Imagine being 12 and you get this word from God. You're laying down in the presence of God and you hear your name Samuel and you think it's Eli. You run and say, what do you need? And he says, I don't need nothing. You know, a pair of glasses maybe, but I don't need anything else. Go back and lay down. And it turns out that this is God speaking to you. And the first thing, the first thing that someone says to you that God says to you is, I'm about to do a thing in Israel in which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli. Oh no, you're thinking as a 12-year-old. Oh, against Eli, all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to the end. I, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. Can you imagine little Samuel laying there hearing this information going, punish my mentor's house And and God gives him the inside 
scoop. He says, here, I'll just tell you what happened because his sons were blaspheming me and he didn't do anything to stop it. Little, little Samuel's laying there going, oh, probably sweat. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house, look at this, shall not be atoned for. Atonement in Christianity is a big word. In other words, you can't fix this one. By sacrifice, sacrifice in Christianity is a big word. Both lead to Jesus. Atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. In other words, the sin of Eli's house is nothing short of the sin of apostasy. They have rejected the word of God, the only word that can save them. And therefore, sacrifice means nothing. There's nothing that can do to help. They've rejected God's word. What can save them? And this is it. Time's up, Eli. And I'm telling your 12-year-old mentee what's about to happen because I'm going to raise him up. So, verse 15, Samuel just lay there until the morning for sure. And then he opened the doors of the house. He gets busy. You know, I'll just do my chores. Hopefully this doesn't come up in conversation. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's not good news here. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. Maybe not so eager this time. And and Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me that I have told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And, and then Eli says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. What an amazing lesson from an, from an, un, uh, an unexpected source. From, the one, from Eli, the one who is guilty of this very thing, he tells Samuel, you be faithful to what God has told you no matter what. No matter what, be faithful. Yeah? Don't you think that the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas would have had it out for young Sam? And that Samuel, by telling Eli everything that God had told him, was as good as dead in his own mind. I mean, that, that's, I mean maybe. I mean, that's, that's a good, I mean, we don't really know, but maybe. I mean, they could have thought of Samuel as insignificant. They could have thought of him as just a stupid kid that was there. That his mom dropped him off and, and here we are stuck with him. I mean, they could have, whatever, they, it, you know, what, whatever. It could have been a threat to him for sure. But I think the, the uh, yes. But the main point is still the same. God, through Eli, he said, you be faithful to this. And this, I believe, is the turning point of the health of the whole nation. This is the turning point. He tells him, he doesn't hide anything, and look at the result. Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he let, this is, this is a career statement. This means over his entire tenure, he let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, this became the hallmark of Samuel's leadership. He was faithful to the word of the Lord above anything else. He never let the, God's word fall to the ground. He gave complete and utter allegiance And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Now, this is a leadership term. The nation, all around, they knew 
that Samuel was established as a prophet from God. They knew that. Whether his words were popular or not, they came to know that Samuel is not going to tell us anything except God's word. And the Lord, and look what happens. The Lord starts to appear again. The chapter began with the word of the Lord being rare and no frequent vision. And now the chapter ends with the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed it. Why? Because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The chapter begins with the problem saying the problem is there was no word of the Lord. And it ends with saying now there's the word of the Lord. Why? Because there's a leader that will be allegiant to it. There's someone that will stick to it, even when it's hard, even when it's, when it's tough. The power of God's word. First, we learn that the power of God, God's word is the power to save in and of itself. Samuel said, or it says about Samuel, he did not know the Lord, and the inference is because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. In other words, if he's exposed to the word of the Lord, he has potential to be saved. You guys, the word of God is so important. That's why we do this at church. That's why we structure our church this way. I'm not going to get up here, I hope. I'm trying not to get up here and tell you my own opinions. And if I do tell you my own opinion, I want to tell you that this is my own opinion. I'm trying to be true to God's word. And I'm trying to know, let you know that when you come to church here, you're, you're going to hear what God is trying to tell us through the Bible, through his word. And that creates a sense of safety for you. That we're going to rightly divide the word of truth, and there's a sense of safety there. If I was to give you my own opinion, I'm a flawed, very flawed person. Don't yell amen, Nicole. Just keep that to yourself. But I'm a, I'm a very flawed person, and there would not be a sense of safety if I came up here and said, here's what I think and we're going to do this and here's what's wrong with the world and here's what's wrong with the culture and we should blah, 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 blah. If I get up here and do all that just on the authority of Mike, man, that, the word of the Lord will get more and more rare. I know that the word of God is the power to heal you and the power to give you power of influence in the world around you. Therefore, we're going to stick to the Bible. It has... Uh, it's so important. The Bible says, how pleasant are the feet of those who bring good news. That's Isaiah. And he's not talking about someone's feet. He's talking about the message that they bear. That gives out good news. What is the good news? Well, we know in the New Testament, the word of the Lord comes to be known as the gospel. The gospel. What is, what is the gospel? Um. A lot of people, there's a lot of people that have a lot to say about what the gospel is, but when we get to the very beginning, let's, I mean, let's start with what Jesus said about it. Let's go to, we just got through with the book of Mark. This is where Jesus talks about it in Mark chapter one. This is verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, here it is, the gospel of God and saying, here it is, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's it. 
There's a lot more. The Bible will continue to add meat to that, but this is its kernel. This is the, this is the, the root of it. The time is fulfilled. In other words, now is the time. Time for what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, the gospel is the proclamation that Jesus has become king. If you want a very, very, very simple and bare bones definition of the gospel, the gospel is the proclamation that Jesus has become king and he's demanding allegiance to that kingdom. Look what he says. He says, repent, in other words, change and believe in the gospel. Um, I'm reading a fascinating theologian right now named Matthew Bates who um, is talking about, in his book, he's talking about what faith is. What did faith mean for the, for the ancients? What did it mean for Jesus? And he's positing that um, it certainly didn't mean for Jesus and the apostles what we think when we hear the word faith. When we think of the word faith, which is pistis in the Greek or pisteo in the, for a, the verb form in the Greek. When we think of the word pistis or, or fides in Latin, we think of um, believing in something inwardly. I inwardly believe that Jesus is God, right? It's a mental, it's an intellectual exercise. I mentally believe something. It's a deep conviction. It's inward, fo- it's inward facing. It's a deep conviction, and then because of that, eventually, then there's work. We're not saved by good works, but then there's, but we will do works eventually when our faith works itself out. That's what we usually think. And Bates says that although that is certainly true, that's certainly part of what the, what the word pistis means or pisteo means, to have faith in something. That's part of it. Every time the Bible uses it in regards to salvation, a kingdom and a king, the best he posits that the best way to translate the word faith is to translate it into the word allegiance. To give allegiance to, to give loyalty to, to a new royal regime, to a new royal figure. And so he goes through all of the places that the faith is, is, um, is used in relation to the gospel of the kingdom. And he, it changes the way you think of it when you think about what allegiance means. You could say in Romans, well, let me go there. Let me go to Romans. Let's see what Paul has to say about the gospel. Romans chapter 1. This is a... Look at, Paul says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart. Here's our part of, our, part of our, what we're talking about. For the gospel, that's the word of God, right? Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures... Concerning his son, who was descended from David, that's royalty, he's from the line of David, according to the flesh, and was, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, so the cross and resurrection is how Jesus became king. So when, when people say, the gospel is Jesus dying on the cross for my sins so that I can go to heaven, not true. As important as Jesus dying on the cross is, it's incredibly important. You would have no gospel without it. But the gospel is Jesus is declared to be king and the cross and resurrection are the means by how he became king over the universe. That's when he says the the kingdom of God is at hand. 
It's starting, the king is here, and the gospel story is how Jesus accomplished that. He died on the cross for sin, rose from the dead, and is exalted at the right hand of God as king over the universe. And now we, now the clarion call is, give allegiance to that kingdom and not other kingdoms. Repent. Forsake your allegiance to any other kingdom, including your own, and transfer your allegiance to the kingdom of God. That's what the gospel, the clarion call of the gospel is. And look it, it goes on. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship, what for? What's the gospel for? Listen, to bring about obedience of faith. Obedience of pistis. Is that just an intellectual thing? Is that just something that's an inward focus of your heart? No. It's an allegiance that, that's outward focused that immediately requires that you grow in that allegiance, that you bow down to a king. The New Testament, the kingdom of God is not a democracy where you get to vote on what God's policies are or who Jesus is. The, this, is uh, this is a monarchy where you, put, you get on your knees, you lay your sword down and you say, command me. What do you want? It immediately entails action. It immediately entails obedience. And that is the purpose of the gospel. The gospel goes out to make all the world allegiant, obedient, loyal to King Jesus, the saving, forgiving king. That's what the gospel's about. And that's what makes you and I Christians. Christians are those who have said, I pledge allegiance to the kingdom of God, to King Jesus, the forgiving, saving king on the throne. I pledge allegiance to him. And all my other allegiances must fall in line under that. Your spouse, rightfully so, right? If you're a member of this country, you have, a, you have a, an allegiance to our country, and rightfully so. The, the idea is that there's a supreme allegiance for Christians that is Jesus and all the other allegiances fall under that and balance under that. And anytime our allegiances get out of whack or out of priority, chaos begins to follow. What makes you a Christian? You're saying my supreme allegiance uh, you know, above everything else and every other person and every other thing in my life, every other ambition, every other uh, passion or political dream or whatever it might be, my main allegiance is to Jesus Christ, period. And everything else falls under that. That's what it's about. Paul ends the letter in the same way. In, in chapter 16, he repeats the phrase, to bring obedience of faith to the nations. The kingdom of God is about a kingdom, it's about a saving King Jesus, and it's about our allegiance to him, period. It's not about something, it's not about a, it's not just about an intellectual body of knowledge that you've mastered in your brain. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, check. Jesus is the, is the incarnate son of God, check. Born of a virgin, check. It's, it is, it's at least that, but it's more than that. It is, and I have given him my life and my allegiance. And when you do that, to that degree, 
the word of God goes out and visions are seen and the word of God goes out into the land and in your own life. But to the degree that you are allegiant to other things above King Jesus, to that degree, the word of God will become more and more rare in your life, though you might hear it everywhere. Your eyes will go dim. Your ears will become dull. You'll get confused about what the gospel actually is. And chaos will reign. Look what Paul says in verse, this famous verse. This is Romans 1, uh, 16. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Look it. For it is the power of God. It is the power of God. In other words, the gospel doesn't just talk about the power of God. It doesn't just offer the power of God. The word itself is the power of God for salvation to everyone who what? Believes. Pisteo in the Greek, who gives allegiance to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Listen to this. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. From pistis to pistis, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And here it is. What does that phrase mean? From faith to faith. Well, if we take Matthew Bates' reading of this or his, trans, his translation of, of uh, faith when it comes to a kingdom, the gospel, we can say the righteousness of God is revealed from allegiance to allegiance. What does that mean? Or for allegiance. What does that mean? In other words, when we see how loyal God is to us from faith, when we see his loyalty his allegiance to us, it is for our allegiance back. Let me put it this way. Although the grace of God and the salvation of God is unconditional and without merit, it does, in fact, also demand a response and a gift back. Come to find out, the idea of a gift without any strings attached is a fairly new idea. In the ancient world, that's not how it worked. When you gave a gift to someone who was undeserving, when you gave a, and that happened all the time, when you gave a gift to someone who was undeserving, even though you didn't give the gift to get something back, you still expected to get something back. Culturally speaking, it was a sign that your gift was received and appreciated. So when we go back into the Old Testament, imagine you're going overseas or you're going to a different culture and they don't think of gift giving the way we do. To us in the West, it's very prized to give a gift and not expect anything back. In fact, it's kind of an insult if we give someone a gift and expect something back. It's like, well, that's not even really a gift then, right? In the ancient world, they didn't think of it that way. In the ancient world, they would give a gift to someone undeserving without any regard to the merit of the receiver but the sign that that receiver appreciated it, accepted and took it was a gift in return. That was, that was the cultural sign. It wasn't to get something in return, but it was expected to show that you got the gift and that you appreciate the gift. 
That's the context that Jesus is speaking here. He's saying, I'm giving you a gift that is unmerited. It's without regard to the merit of the receiver. It's not that you've worked for it. It's not that it's salvation by works at all. I'm giving it to you. You don't deserve it. But it demands a return to show that you've received it. In other words, in this way, works and faith are not pitted against each other. They are forever united. Namely, what does he expect back from us? He's given you a gift. If you're a Christian here, he's given you a gift. His blood, his body, without regard to your merit. You did not earn it, nor could you ever. It's grace upon grace upon grace. What does he expect? What's demanded in return? Your allegiance that he's priority above everything else, above, above everything else, that you would bow your own opinions, your own strong um, passions, your desires, your, what you think ought to be, you, you bow all of that under the word of God, whether you understand it or not. You pledge allegiance to Jesus. And to the degree that you do that, the word of God will be released in your heart, released to those that are around you, and you will become leaders as you grow in that allegiance. Notice what it did in Samuel's life. It made him into the leader that he was. It shaped Samuel. Look at the end of it. Well, I guess I'm not there anymore. Let me go back there. Um, Sam, sorry, I'm working off my iPad today. I didn't copy and paste everything in my notes, so I'm having to go back and forth. Um, still a billion times faster than, you know. Um, look at the end here. He says, and Samuel grew. In other words, this allegiance is something that it's not static. This allegiance, this faith that you and I have, it's not something you either have or you don't have. It's something that you have that you also exercise and grow in. Okay? Samuel grew in this allegiance and the Lord was with him and, let, and Samuel let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of God. Now, Here's, here's some practical things. How does it shape you as a leader? Well, by one, you need to understand that the gospel, the Bible, and Christianity will be, listen, will be both for every culture and also challenge every culture, no matter what culture you're in. Here's how you can know if you're off track. The Bible, let me put it this way. The Bible and the gospel Listen carefully, everybody. This is really important. Is political, not partisan. The Bible, the gospel, is political and not partisan. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible will talk to society. It will talk to our culture. It has everything to do with all of those things. And yet, it is not, it is not congruent, completely perfect, with republicanism or conservatism or liberalism. 
It will, to some degree, not equally, but to some degree, it will, agree, it will agree with certain political parties or economic systems or those types of things and hold those things up while challenging them at the same time. So don't be, here's what I'm saying. Don't be fooled into thinking that the, or make sure that the gospel that you are preaching is the true gospel and not what we've come to think is the gospel in our culture. I know a lot of folks that think that um, Christianity and conservatism are the same thing. They are not. They are not. There's a lot of things that the Bible will always challenge in any culture and yet also affirm in any culture. On the other hand, well, for example, this is, this is Pride Month here in Seattle. It's a big deal here in Seattle. And on the one hand, the Bible will say, hey, love is what we need. We need to love all people, no matter what. We have no business as Christians looking down on anyone. We're to embrace everybody and to love everybody, even when we don't understand them, even when we disagree with them. We don't have to have a quick canceling of people the minute they disagree with us. We can still love and, be, and disagree. That's what the Bible will say. On the one hand, love everybody. We should be going toward the culture, embracing the culture, not shunning it. On the other hand, the Bible will always challenge the culture's sexual ethics or the ethics of identity. It will, as much as, you, as, much as our culture wants the Bible to agree that they're Sexual identity is who, the essence of who they are. The Bible will just not go there. I'm, it won't. Without some really in, insane abuse to the text. What happens when we're not allegiant to the gospel, when we align on either side, the gospel begins to get dulled, blunted. On the one hand, we shun people, we look down on them, we avoid them, we roll their eyes at them, we act in disgust towards them. That's the word of God going dull and dumb in our culture. And on the other extreme, we acquiesce, we change the word of God. We say, oh, it's fine. And we take, we do great abuse to the word of God. In, in Genesis chapter one, the Bible says, that mankind was created in the image of God and then gives them an act to do, go and uh, have dominion over the, over the earth, increase in numbers, that's sex. It's not, sex is not something that you are, it's something that you do as a child of God, as, a, as a, someone in, in a Mago day. We've made it, no, this is who I am. This is me. This is my identity. And until the Bible and Christians agree that this is me, well, then you're rejecting me. And I'm sorry, the Bible just will not go that far. It won't do it. But it does tell us to love fiercely. It does, it does tell us to go out and love the culture with all of our heart, extravagantly, listening, learning people's stories, trying to understand them, but without compromising the word of God. See, that is what puts us in a, that's the tension that we're called to walk. And to that degree, we're, see, and that's the thing, we're, we're aligning ourselves to the allegiance of the word of God, not culture on either side. And on one hand, not our own thinking and assuming that our thinking is completely perfect with the word of God. Of course it's not. 
We're growing in our allegiance. And on the other hand, we're not acquiescing to the culture either. And notice, in Samuel's day, Samuel's hard line with the Bible is what the culture needed. And they came to respect him and to know that, okay, he's, gonna, he's a prophet. In other words, he's speaking the words of God. We might not like it, but that's what he's doing. And he offered direction. Because he was, letting, he, was, he was aligned with the word of God. He, wasn't, he didn't allow any leaders to pick his pocket or to, or to pad his pocket. That would show allegiance somewhere else. It all comes down to allegiance. How are we to be people of influence in our culture? We're talking about speaking the truth in love. That's, that's basically the subject that we're talking about here. How do we be people of influence in our culture? By first giving our allegiance to Jesus no matter what. No matter what. Above everything else. And we grow in that allegiance humbly. Humbly. And we start by, we do that through realizing how much Jesus was, was loyal to you and me. Even when it was hard even when it wasn't popular, even when it was difficult, he went against his own um, desires in the, in, the, in the garden of Gethsemane. What did he say? Let this cup pass from me. You know what that means? He wanted the cup of dying for us to pass from him. That's what he wanted. He didn't want to go through with it. But what did he do? He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, I'm bowing to the allegiance of God rather than this conflict that's going on within me. When we realize how loyal Jesus is to us, even when it wasn't popular, even when it was hard, we can then offer our allegiance back to him. And it's a lifestyle of repentance. We have to keep honest with our hearts. When do our kids become more than just our kids? When does money become more than money? The Bible will always go after that too. Money to the Bible is a tool, God's resources to be unleashed on society for its healing. That's the overall. Now, is it good to be a good steward of money? Yes, absolutely. Do that. But if you're hoarding it for yourself and the American dream, the Bible's going to challenge you every day. You'll never be able to get away from that. The Bible says money is God's power in the church's hands to be released into the culture to bring health and healing to ourselves and to to people around us. That's what it's about. How How do we get all these things right? By pledging allegiance to the king, to the forgiving king who became king. That's the gospel. The proclamation that Jesus has become king. And it demands our allegiance. And when we come up here today, we're taking communion now. That's what you're doing. You're re-upping. You're saying, okay, this, isn't ju- this is not a cracker and juice. I mean, it is. But it, it means so much more than that, doesn't it? It means I pledge allegiance to my king, to the royal um, messiah that became king through the cross and the resurrection, that's now exalted to the right hand of the Father who's ruling and reigning in the cosmos, his kingdom will win out. I'm with him. I give my allegiance to him. 
and I'm going to turn my allegiance away to the other things that have become, that have become ultimate. I'm going to give my allegiance back to God. That's what we do. Whether you're doing it for the first time or whether you're doing it again, that's why we do it every week. 